0: One
1: the package is being delivered. Hey everyone, this is Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler uh, here for our new twice-weekly cyber podcasts. Um, I'm gonna be hosting on Tuesdays, and Matt Galt is gonna continue hosting on Thursdays. Uh, we're doing this because we want to give more cyber to you and because the motherboard staff is really big and we cover a lot of things, so I wanted to just get more of the staff on and talking about what it is we're doing. So uh, today I have senior staff writer Anna Merlin. Hi Anna.
0: Hi, Jason. I have never heard you say your last name out loud before.
1: Yeah, I feel like <laughs> it's not what I I thought say it, was. it a lot and then people who I've known like my whole life will still say cobbler and have uh, cobbler. I I yeah. It's really like I just don't care at this point, you know. I, I, I don't even clock it when people say Keebler or Cobler, but uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's, well, I've always said Kebler, but then when I go, like I went to Germany one time and it's a German last <laughs> name and people are like, oh yeah, Kupla," Like that's definitely how you say that. And I'm like, oh, I've never said it like that in my life. But Kebler. I yeah, I feel yeah. last names are really weird names in general, but you know.
0: It's amazing. I feel like I've already learned so much from this podcast. So I'm gonna go. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thanks. Thanks.
1: Okay. Uh, okay. So that's our show. <laughs> no. Uh, we will be talking about all the things that Anna writes about, which is broadly speaking, conspiracy theories, anti-vax, health, weird internet stuff, culture wars. Does that Does that cover the gamut? There's There's more, but that's, yeah. that's kind of what I think about.
0: I feel like pre-COVID I used to write about other stuff and now um, this this is what I do all day. So, yes.
1: Yeah, I think I just wanted to start with a story that you did last week, which was my favorite story, just in terms of kind of overall weirdness uh, in quite some time from anyone, which is uh, the George magazine thing. That's what I, I call it, the George magazine thing. Right. Um, what, uh, what is happening with this? I feel like that's like a good window to, to your world right. to start on. <laughs> Yeah.
0: So we got or I got a tip that um a specific issue of George magazine, which has been out of uh, print for a really long time, uh, was selling on eBay for thousands of dollars. Um And it's selling on eBay for thousands of dollars because uh, it appears that people who follow QAnon believe that the magazine is prophetic. Basically, they think it's predicting the future. The issue of the magazine is called Survival Guide to the Future. Um, It features an interview with Bill Gates and the editor of George magazine uh, before his death was JFK Jr. Who uh, as folks know is a big player in the QAnon movement because there are at least two people whom QAnon believers believe to be uh, the reincarnation of JFK Jr. So um, for all of these very bizarre reasons. This particular issue of George Magazine uh, has sold on eBay for thousands of dollars, um, just in the last couple months. Like we found, I think like eleven issues that had sold for between seven hundred and like twenty five hundred dollars. Which, to be clear, is uh, a lot more than an old issue of an out of print magazine would ever, ever, ever sell for.
1: I did just go to a vintage store in Venice, though, that had old copies of Vogue for like two, three, four hundred dollars. And I was like, wow. Yeah, this is uh, I, I was just very used to old magazines selling for like seventy five cents at a yard sale. But uh, times have changed, I guess. Um, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's probably what George magazine would have sold for in a non uh, bonkers universe. But instead, here we are.
1: So. Do we have a copy of the interview with Bill Gates? Like, from what I understand, it's just a pretty straightforward, normal interview with Bill Gates. Like, Bill Gates has done many, many, many interviews. But uh, do we have any idea why, specifically, QAnon people are very into this issue besides the JFK Jr. and Bill Gates connection?
0: So, a couple things happened. Um, One is obviously just that having JFK Jr. and Bill Gates in the same magazine called survival guide to the future is just irresistible to these folks anyway. Like mostly this started going viral just because of its cover. Um, But the other thing that happened was that a piece of internet lore wrongly circulated that in that interview, Bill Gates had predicted that there would be a lung choking virus that would kill everyone. Um, And while that prediction is in this issue of George magazine, it wasn't Bill Gates who said it. Um, mostly, the Gates interview is him talking about, you know, the power of the then nascent internet and sort of what it can do and how it's going to drive social and political engagement and a bunch of issues, which, of course, now feels incredibly ironic, considering why the magazine is coming around again. But, no, he did not predict that there was going to be a lung choking, choking virus,
1: right. So you might just mention that, this magazine went viral and the sort of contents of it went viral. And Mm -hmm. that's what I I really want to talk about because – I didn't see it. And I see a lot of viral stuff, like what I, what things that I consider to be viral. It's like, I saw it on Twitter, I saw it on Reddit or I saw it on so so on and so forth. And without telling people exactly where to go find disinformation, it's like, Mm -hmm. like, where are these things going viral? Like for a while, I know that, uh, QAnon was largely circulating on 8chan. Like, I I mean, Mm -hmm. does that just mean like it, it went viral on 8chan or is it like a more decentralized version of virality at this point?
0: I think it's a lot more decentralized. I've seen it on Twitter because I don't think it is sort of flagged as a piece of QAnon lore in the same ways than that it is um, pretty widespread on Telegram. Places like Telegram are uh, among the places where QAnon has gone now. And what's funny is that like this has actually been a piece of QAnon lore for a long time, to the point when I reached out to our colleague David Gilbert, who writes about QAnon all the time. He knew what I was talking about. And so did Travis View, who's one of the hosts of QAnon Anonymous, which is a podcast that writes about QAnon. This has been a thing for probably at least a year and a half. Just sort of the knowledge of this magazine as a piece of, of um, as a piece of lore, as one of the sort of artifacts of Q. But yeah, in terms of where it's spreading, I do think that QAnon is really kind of diffuse right now.
1: Yeah, I, I guess like very anecdotally, the people that I know who are into either conspiracy theories or maybe are touching conspiracy theories and they don't necessarily know that their conspiracy theories are are mm-hmm. like a lot of them are getting the information, frankly, from like text messages from friends and f- email forwards and chain letters and things like that. Like yeah. I'll, I'll talk to uh, people I know and they're like, my mom just got this like really crazy email forward as though it were like 1995 on AOL or something and mm-hmm. i guess it's like i don't know i feel like i i guess maybe this was always happening it's like obviously there's always been disinformation on chain letters like there's always been like forward this and uh bill gates won't start charging for Microsoft office or something, I guess Microsoft charges for that, but there was a big <laughs> one on Facebook where it's like forward this or, uh or Mark Zuckerberg is going to make you pay $5 for Facebook every month.
0: But oh, yeah. I, I feel
1: like for a while, it's like, if you were, if you talk, if you start talking about disinformation, it was like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit places that as a reporter, I understand a lot where and, and you can kind of like go and see it whereas right now i think a lot of it is happening in places that maybe you can't just go find real quick like mm-hmm. is that true or no
0: yeah i mean i think one sort of interesting thing has happened as a result of a lot of kind of major conspiracy players getting deplatformed and the uh, places like sort of facebook and twitter kind of and Q and a uh, youtube sort of belatedly trying to push out stuff like QAnon and make it sort of less a part of their platform, which is that people have gone to a host of like alternative sites, none of which have caught on to the same extent. So whereas before, you know, maybe as reporters, we'd be checking three or four places. Now we're checking way more than that, whether it's telegram sort of alternative video platforms like rumble places like clubhouse, you know, where it's an audio app and you have to listen to figure out what's going on. There's just way more. Um, and one of the sort of interesting things that's happening I think on all of our beats is that the people who promote conspiracy theories and misinformation are constantly trying to figure out which platform is going to catch on in the same way that Twitter has, because Twitter was really good for them. And the ones who can't use Twitter anymore are constantly trying to replace it with something else, you know, that will get them as much reach and crucially will let them sort of into like a more mainstream conversation and not just have them talking to their followers, you know? So like a ton of people, uh, in the sort of conspiracy verse have complained about that. For instance, when they migrate to places like Gab or Telegram, that they're just not getting heard by like the same number of people.
1: Right. Which all all filters up into the big conversation that we've been having endlessly over and over and over again about like big Mm -hmm. tech censorship and free speech and so on and so forth that we've talked about so many times. But I feel like a good case study here is probably the one people always bring up. Well, there's two, probably Mm -hmm. more than that, but it's like Milo Yiannopoulos was banned by Twitter and Facebook and possibly YouTube. I'm not sure about YouTube, but he was basically... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he was banned on his like really big platforms and Mm -hmm. suddenly like his influence and spread, like he's still doing something somewhere. Maybe you know where he is. I don't, but it's like, I don't hear (laughs) about him all the time. And it's kind of the same with Alex Jones, which you wrote a really great feature about kind of like the sun setting of his mass influence where it's like Alex Jones's ideas are really popular, but Alex Jones himself is not that popular because he's lost his megaphone in a lot of ways. And I I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, is, I mean, I, what, what sort of like stance do you take in terms of like, you know, these platforms should not be allowing like blatant, dangerous disinformation and racist Mm -hmm. and misogynistic stuff. And COVID right. Well, conspiracy well i don't know it's like you can argue at various different ways but but a lot of people are win. like you know if you stop am- giving these people a megaphone their influence will wane but like do you, sure. i guess do you buy mm. into that argument
0: so in an on an individual actor sense that is true um milo yiannopoulos is shilling like religious statues on uh down market version of QBC for Christians uh as part of a, a pivot that he's tried to make. Like he is he's very hard up. He's like um, straight and, and
1: religious now, right? Yeah, He has claimed
0: to be ex gay and religious and um, you know, is sort of trying to work that angle, which I don't think is Going super well. Um, and then obviously Alex Jones is just much harder to find than he used to be. Um, you can still go to InfoWars, but most people don't. That's not how most people were finding his content before. And so, yeah, he's, he's clearly having a hard time financially. We know this for a couple of reasons. And, um, his sort of influence in the mainstream sphere is just much less. So the thing that I always say when the deplatforming conversation comes up is that, um, platforms don't care about promoting good information. We know that, like, from years and years and years of covering places like Twitter and Facebook, like, they don't actually care about, you know, the social good or promoting responsible discourse or whatever. They care about what is going to look bad in the public eye, and they care about what can get them sued or, you know, hauled in front of Congress again to, you know, talk about the ways that their platforms are subverting democracy, you know? And so this puts us in a position where these platforms are only really responsive to What gets them criticized? What gets them heat? Which is not a super good or like consistent way to create moderation rules. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, I also don't agree with the idea that, you know, all of these people (laughs) deserve to be on Twitter and that kicking them off of Twitter for promoting misinformation is the same as kicking them out of like the public sphere. And now we're having this discussion again about Joe Rogan and Spotify because this week, um, for those who don't know, uh, Joe Rogan's sort of platforming of some particularly bad actors is coming up again. And the fact that he has used uh, racial slurs in any number of his podcasts, which, um, our colleague Gita wrote a really good piece about. So like ultimately this is a hard discussion because these are private companies hosting public conversations and private companies don't, uh, don't have any particular motivation to like the public good. So we're always going to kind of go around in circles about what what should be allowed, what is sort of the best like way to handle bad actors or, you know uh, right. And in Spotify's case we're not even talking uh-huh. about
1: an American company. Like what
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so what I always say too is that what this does in the end is that it's very good at deplatforming individual actors. It's very good at giving people like Milo and Alex Jones less power, but it doesn't actually do anything to make like the conversation Better or more accurate, like, um, you know, if you if you don't have Alex Jones to promote, say, misinformation about COVID or vaccines or the elections, there are 10,000 other people just like him that are waiting to take his place. So it doesn't really solve sort of the bigger or deeper issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's obviously a really Good point. And Mm -hmm. Joseph Cox and I did a big piece on Facebook's moderation efforts a few years ago. And the the thing that struck me the most about Facebook's content moderation policies were like the rigidity to it. It's like they Mm. try their, like human moderators are looking at the vast majority of this stuff outside of things like child porn, which they have a lot of AI mechanisms to to remove, although Mm -hmm. someone has to originally tag those. so. You know you can start talking about that, but it's like Facebook tries its best to basically make sure that any human would determine a specific piece of content either breaks its rules or doesn't break its rules. And obviously so much of this stuff is subjective, but then it's like, well, Facebook is like, okay, is there a nipple? Is there like a visible nipple in this image? Is there also a baby? Is there also like a penis? Like they'll do like all these things and it's like, okay, that's allowed or that's not allowed. But then right, it's over, incredibly the years, sort of, yeah, over the yeah. years, we've learned that there's like exceptions to all of these rules, depending on whether it's a public figure, depending on whether Ted Cruz is going to get mad at them at a congressional hearing, like all of these sorts of people were like whitelisted or so on and so forth. And so it's like, yeah, it's just, as you said, it's like a case by case basis. And then that I feel like that really helps the narrative that it's like, These big tech companies are Mm. uh, deplatforming XYZ voices and therefore can't be trusted, which starts a whole news cycle, which amplifies the message further, which kind of like perpetuates the problem.
0: So mm-hmm. so yeah, forth. Absolutely. And it's like, yeah,
1: it's just, I mean, I, I don't have a question there, but it's just like, that is just like a mess, you know? Um, yeah, no,
0: it's an incredibly sort of vicious cycle. And ultimately, like, at least for a little bit, it kind of serves the people who are at the center of the discussion. Like we've seen that, you know, when individual actors are sort of the ones being discussed, like at least for a little while they gain more followers. They're in the news a lot. Like it can be a very good, very profitable moment for them you know, it doesn't always last, you know, people, again, like Milo are a good example where he got this sort of flood of publicity and was able to get more followers on, say, Telegram. But then, you know, in the end, people kind of forgot about him. So people have to constantly almost be like taunting these moderation platforms and talking about them a lot and then finding, you know, sympathetic uh, interviewers to, you know, talk to them about how they're being censored to kind of start the cycle all over again. But yeah, it's exhausting and we're just going to keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: Yeah, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about where the disinformation comes from, as in like the actual topics being discussed, which is just to say like, yeah, you can talk about how it filters through the ecosystem, but like, you know, if someone like obviously someone is Q or some group of people is Q and I'm not interested in like who Q is, but like a lot of QAnon Mm -hmm. stuff is just like clearly made up nonsense. Whereas a lot of the COVID stuff is like taking something that either is true or has some basic basis in fact, or like was published somewhere by someone regardless of whether it's peer reviewed or accurate or whatever. And then, yeah. Kind of like spinning it off from there. Like I guess mm-hmm. with COVID misinformation in particular, like where are you see like where where do the narratives come from, I guess?
0: So a really interesting thing about COVID misinformation is sort of two things are happening. One is that the sort of major players in the anti vax world who have been major players in that world for a long time are kind of retrofitting their message for COVID. So everything they used to say at anti-vax conferences and on their podcasts about, say, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, they're now saying about COVID vaccines, right? Uh So they've been very well prepared for this, and they have for a long time, and they're finding a new audience because all of a sudden people who didn't have any real thoughts about vaccines are being forced to consider them. Um And in the case of some other types of COVID misinformation, uh, they are essentially... Political efforts in a way that's really interesting. We tend to think of misinformation as, you know, sort of originating somewhere in a swamp and then getting progressively more mainstreamed until it appears on Fox News, right? Like, that's often kind of how we think of it is that, say, someone like Alex Jones picks up a piece of misinformation, uh, and then Joe Rogan repeats it, and then Donald Trump repeats it. But um, in reality, some COVID misinformation. Has been more of a top-down effort, and um, specifically when I say that, I'm uh, talking about groups like um, America's frontline doctors, who you know were this uh, group of self-proclaimed physicians um, who said that they were COVID experts and that they treated COVID patients and started advocating for discredited drugs like hydro- hydroxychloroquine, right? Um, but so after they started holding all these press conferences and getting a ton of attention and describing themselves as a grassroots group, um, the Washington Spectator actually published a really good piece about how, in fact, this was the project of a coalition of conservative organizations who sort of disagree with COVID lockdown measures and restrictions and kind of wanted a to form a medical-looking body to promote some sort of alternative narratives about covid So this was a group called the um, Council for National Policy. And there were people there from places like the Heritage Foundation and ALEC and the Tea Party Patriots. And they sort of came together to create this group that then misleadingly described itself as a grassroots group. Um, So that's a specific example, but all of which is to say that the sort of bad information about COVID is kind of flinging around from every direction. A lot of it is politically motivated. A lot of it is, you know, long time sort of bad information peddlers who kind of see an opening. Um, This has really been a windfall for everyone uh, in the sort of bad information sphere.
1: I feel like you've done such great reporting on ivermectin in particular. Mm -hmm. And that one, as you said, um, was, I don't know if, if you would describe that as a top down sort of misinformation situation. But in that case, it's like you did have doctors prescribing ivermectin you had kind of like other countries that were either doing trials or tests or like ivermectin was Mm -hmm. being used in this way and then i feel like you then have the situation where people get prescribed ivermectin they get better from covid because their immune system fights off ivermectin like you know covid doesn't kill everyone that that gets it Mm -hmm. it's like some people are just naturally going to get better and then you suddenly have like ivermectin evangelists who are like well i took it and i got better um yeah and then it kind of spreads both top down but also like bottom sideways and and then up yeah. through that because you you probably have like viral stories of like i was really sick and then suddenly i was better you know like what definitely um, how what is the story what is the story of ivermectin if if there right. is one
0: so um it's still playing out. But what we know right now is that, yeah, ivermectin is being looked at in any number of clinical trials, like good, well-designed clinical trials that take a long time, right? Um, so far, the results are not promising. Uh, the best information that we have is that ivermectin is not an effective preventative or treatment for covid um, at the same time, sort of two organizations emerged pretty much simultaneously, one in the U.K. and one in the U.S. Um, the one in the U.S. is called the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, and the one in the U.K. is called the Bird Group. Um, and both of them uh, purport to be uh, physicians treating COVID who say that, you know, ivermectin is effective for their patients. Um, in reality, uh, these folks are physicians, some of them, but there also are a bunch of sort of former uh journalists turn kind of right wing actors involved who have been helpful in promoting not just the message that ivermectin might work, which is not inherently a political message, but the idea that ivermectin is being suppressed, the idea that ivermectin is uh, more effective than a COVID vaccine, which is not true. And that the government is suppressing ivermectin as a cure because they want to promote vaccination for some kind of sinister purpose. Um, and this is, this is rhetoric that we see a lot, uh, from kind of, how do I put this? Um, from people promoting contested alternative treatments. There's a really long history of this in the U.S. that we don't necessarily have to get into, but, um, the idea that the government will, purposely suppress an effective treatment because they want to make money off of something else is a very common sort of narrative. And what has happened with ivermectin that's been super interesting is that these kind of fringe physicians and kind of right-wing actors have also been joined by, as I've written about, kind of a coalition of bloggers who consider themselves to be part of the the intellectual dark web and say that they kind of exited mainstream journalism because they came to believe that it was... uh, I don't know what they would say about mainstream journalism, that they came to believe that it, you know, that it was not committed to the truth. And so a bunch of these people have begun promoting ivermectin um, and also promoting the idea that it's a suppressed secret effective cure for COVID. Um, So we've seen like Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying, both of whom are... Uh, former professors turned podcasters, Matt Taibbi, who's of course a super famous ex-Rolling Stone journalist, Barry Weiss, formerly of the New York Times. These people with really big profiles, um, have begun sort of promoting this false narrative about, uh, ivermectin's sort of effectiveness and the idea that it's being suppressed. Um, which has been really interesting to watch because it has created this sort of enormous interest in ivermectin that didn't necessarily happen the same way with hydroxychloroquine or some of the other contested COVID cures.
1: Right. And I feel like um, we don't have to do an entire section on like the vaccine specifically, but (laughs) I feel like you can kind of look at the history of covid and the u.s's response to it and poke holes in it it's like you know fauci Mm -hmm. was out there saying like you know save the masks for uh for doctors and first line responders and that sort of thing and it's like a lot of the the narrative here doesn't sort of allow for the evolution of information and like changing situations on the ground but then at the same time it's like well if you have someone who is an anti-vaxxer saying like, we can't trust Pfizer because X, Y, Z, many different reasons. It's like Pfizer has done a lot of bad things. Um, That doesn't mean that like unrelated to COVID and unrelated to the vaccine, like Pfizer Mm -hmm. has done things that like, it's part of the American healthcare conglomerate that is extremely dehumanizing and extremely bad in many different ways. And so it's like people who are, trying to I guess defend the truth which sounds a little bit higher and mightier than I want it to but people who mm-hmm. are out there saying like yeah take the vaccine etc are, th- are then forced to sort of like answer for all of Pfizer's crimes like, yeah. over the course of the entirety of its like existence of which there and are Johnson
0: And Johnson right. & Johnson which is yeah paying out like a very poorly timed um, lawsuit yeah all this stuff exactly there's this sort of like constant accusation too that if you are Defending the efficacy of vaccines, then you must be, you know, a big pharma shell, which is like a, a phrase that's so common that it's sort of become a joke. But literally, I can't count like the number of times that I've been told that I must be getting paid by Pfizer or that Vice must be getting paid by a drug company, and that's why we're promoting this, um, which is not true. I'm not getting paid by anyone except my boss, who is George Soros. I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm not getting like paid that. by anyone except Vice. <laughs> Right. But no, um, yeah, this is super, super common is the idea that like, well, how can you possibly trust a product that comes from, uh, you know, drug manufacturers with like a long history of other unrelated outrages and sketchy doings? Um, I mean, the reality is that vaccines work and that it is not just U.S. domestic drug companies that are producing vaccines for COVID uh, because you know, as a global health community, everyone has pretty much agreed that this is that this is one of the ways that we beat COVID. You know, and so the idea that the entire world and the entire medical establishment worldwide would agree to sort of conspire against the common people to promote a cure that doesn't really work, uh just it doesn't make sense, like on its face.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about is sort of the melding of worlds between sort Mm. of what I would call like new agey anti-vaxxers and then sort of the new brand of anti-vax that's more associated with like conservative right-wing politics. Mm Right. Is this, is this surprising to you is, or is this, or was there always sort of like a right-wing angle to the new age anti-vax vaccines cause autism line of attack on, there's, Vaccines,
0: uh-huh. Right. No. So there's definitely always been vaccine opposition from both the right and left since before COVID. I think it was seen as like a primarily sort of left wing crunchy thing, but it's really not um, anybody who sort of has any objections to like either the mainstream medical establishment or sort of centralized government, like the idea that the government should tell you what to do like ever uh, eventually comes around to some form of like vaccine objection or hesitancy so like years ago i went to the autism one conference which is a pretty sort of infamous anti-vax conference and got kicked out which is of course what happens to every journalist who goes to that conference but um again that was a really interesting place to see the melding of all of those worlds you can see you know folks that you would think of as being very sort of crunchy or left-wing uh you can see you know, people who claim that they were sort of ordinary parents until they became disaffected after their children were vaccinated. And then the year I was there, there was actually a QAnon panel. Um, I believe this was 2019. So we could already see these worlds kind of starting to merge together. Uh, and like vaccine sort of skepticism or hesitancy or overt like anti-vax sentiment is one of those things that, uh, one of the few things in American society that we really see across sort of all spectrums for different reasons, but um, it doesn't necessarily have a, like a political orientation.
1: Is this is, is the fact that it's more pronounced and there's like more, I guess, intermingling between left wing and right wing conspiracy theorists on the issue of anti-vax, mm-hmm. very concerning, kind of concerning or kind of like par for the course because all, all of it's not great.
0: It's not great. I do find it concerning. I find it concerning. So I wrote about this, uh, I think a year or two ago and called it sort of the conspiracy singularity, which is the place where all these different conspiracy groups are meeting as a result of COVID. Like COVID is creating sort of a set of unifying circumstances to bring all these different groups together. Um, and one thing that concerns me about that is that folks are kind of adopting each other's worst ideas So, for instance, I wrote about a very prominent sort of anti-vaccine figure named Larry Cook, who during COVID um, adopted QAnon talking points and has become like a full-blown Q believer. Or people in the anti-vax world who, as a result of sort of mingling with these other folks, started promoting election conspiracy theories, uh, for instance. You know, like there uh, is a lot of overlap here that doesn't seem to... Motivate anyone to make better decisions. This isn't a place where people are meeting and developing good ideas together. This is a place where everyone seems to be sort of further radicalizing each other and sort of inducting each other into the worst and most extreme ideas in their particular subculture. So that does concern me, but um, everything concerns me. right now yeah I would say that this is just a generally concerning time so yeah but I mean these are effects that we're gonna feel after after the pandemic like the the alliances that have been formed here are not going to go away when cases start dropping again like that's just not uh, that's not how it's gonna work and so um where they are going to focus their collective efforts on next uh, is a subject of a lot of interest and concern for me
1: yeah. Uh, that is all I will uh have you talk about disinformation and the pipeline i, I learned a lot as I always learn a lot. I'm gonna ask a question that I ask everyone every Friday, which is mm-hmm. uh what did you what have you learned this week any any wow. good factoids sorry to to put you on the spot
0: Let me think about what I've learned this week um I spend a lot of my free time making bread so you know i could I could talk to you a lot about like uh bread factoids uh <laughs> Wow, A timer just went off for me to turn my bread, in fact. Um,
1: what what are you making right now?
0: I'm making a sesame honey loaf for my aunt. So if she listens to the cyber podcast, it's going to ruin the surprise. But okay. uh, hopefully she doesn't. No offense. <laughs> um, let me see. What else have I learned? I learned that there are some mustard greens that taste exactly like wasabi. They don't have wasabi on them. They are just mustard greens that nature happened to confer with the taste that is exactly the taste of wasabi, which is amazing. Nature is incredible.
1: Yeah. You were saying this, this was very mind blowing to me. I had no, no idea. I mean, it's like, there's so much,
0: there's so much stuff out there. The world is so exciting. Um, especially when you get off the computer.
1: Yeah. That's a, I mean, it sounds very trite to say this and, and feel very, um, privileged to be able to do this, but it's like, Go outside, like touch grass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like things seem much better when you do that. Um, and that's it, true. It's like yeah, baked bread. Uh, I don't know if you're growing the the greens here in question, but I'm uh, not. You, I
0: wish I eat could eat a new
1: type of green. I feel like eat that's a new type good. Of green. Uh, I went to a sushi making class the other day, which was really fun. Um, I love
0: that. That's so yeah. cool. Did, are you good at it now? Can you make sushi?
1: It's not that hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like obviously. It's not that hard to make like a very passable like I don't know what I'm doing type of sushi. It's obviously Yeah, you can make 7-Eleven sushi. Yeah, but mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a very fun process like cutting the fish very thinly and rolling it and it it feels a little bit like arts and crafts just in the sense that you have various specialized tools and like the bamboo mat that you have to, you know, use as the roller and it's like if you're good at manual kind of construction and mm-hmm. fine like motor skills. I would say that you're going to like Louise, my girlfriend was way better than me at it because she's uh, better at things like sewing and, um, Uh and just way artsier than I am. I'm very not great at this stuff. Although I try, (laughs) Um, they both tasted delicious though. So it was good. I'm going to definitely do it again.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say that like, you know, the stuff that we cover and the worlds that we're in. Every time I put my face in my phone or my computer, are so um, depressing and dispiriting. And then every time I go outside and I can go for a hike or I can see, you know, that the ocean is still there, I'm like, oh right, um, not everything is terrible. So yeah, I would just urge all of your listeners to both literally and figuratively touch grass.
1: Yeah. All right, Anna. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Here we go. We have the the outro music. I always do this. I always cut it off too fast. So I'm going to let it go. Because then when I listen back to it later, it's like, oh, it just kind of like ended.
0: <laughs> How many listeners do you have? Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues